This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm producer Paul Ingalls, today with correspondent Yamani Ranjan. What do you think of when you think of abusive relationships? Probably adults married or living together, right? Thinking that overlooks the age group that is perhaps most susceptible and underprepared to handle domestic abuse, and that's teenagers. On today's Peace Talks radio episode, correspondent Yamani Ranjan explores the dynamics of dating and breakups among teens with three guests who are exploring a range of issues such as the psychology of domestic violence, in-school programs that are geared toward prevention of teen violence, and personal motivations that drive work on the issue. Today we're spotlighting efforts going on close to Boston, Massachusetts, and later Nicole Daly will delve deep into the in-school programs geared toward prevention of teen domestic violence that are going on there. Nicole is the director of the Division of Violence and Injury Prevention at Massachusetts Department of Public Health. Also, we'll talk with Jessica Tepero about the psychological side of teen domestic violence. Jessica is the Director of Prevention Programs at Reach Beyond Domestic Violence, an organization that's worked with survivors and communities in towns around Boston for 40 years. But first, we'll hear from Dr. Malcolm Astley, a father who was directly impacted by teen domestic violence. Dr. Astley talks about the murder of his daughter by her ex-boyfriend, and how this tragedy inspired him to establish the Lauren Dunn Astley Memorial Fund, create the Loved to Death Workshop, and make it his life's work to educate teens about this topic. We hear from Dr. Astley in a moment. Here's our correspondent, Yamani Ranjan. Good things come in small package. Tiny, five-foot-tall Lauren had a lot of personality and a beautiful voice. She was born to Malcolm Astley and Mary Dunn in Wayland. Her life was cut short by violence. Her ex-boyfriend Nathaniel Fujita, also known as Nate, murdered Lauren on July 3, 2011, a crime for which he was convicted and imprisoned for life. Tenth year of her passing, she was remembered and celebrated by her friends and family. I was a part of this celebration and I witnessed the beautiful performance of Lauren's a cappella group that reunited to perform on this occasion. After her passing, her parents started the Lauren Dunn Astley Memorial Fund to provide education about teen violence, in other words, dating and breakup violence. You know how sometimes you feel your whole life you've been preparing for something or waiting for that one moment of reckoning? When asked about how he ended up in this role and line of educator's work, Malcolm goes back to his childhood and recalls how mental health was an important topic in his family. My, my background's a mixture of education and psychology. My father was a psychoanalyst. My mother was a psychiatric social worker. So I was sort of steeped in mental health questions and conversations from very early on. Uh, most meals included some chat about that, uh, the constant question of what makes people tick and what makes them encounter difficulties and challenges. So I, I was very interested in it uh, from early on and and somehow uh, taking school maybe a little bit too seriously, I really wanted it to work well for young people. And I went into education mainly as a, a means toward preventive mental health. 
Um, that was my goal. Maybe it was a competition with my father. <laughs> he was seeing one, one patient, one client at a time. And I was trying to work with large groups of young people and their families uh, to try to help, help it all come out the best it could. And there are ironies in that, of course, now in my life. But those were some of the original reasons I went into uh, education and psychology. My doctorate is in counseling and human development. I spent a lot of time in schools and, and they're sweet as they are, they're hard objects to move in any direction. It's, uh, it takes a lot of time and effort, uh, but I, I valued it so much, even if there were a lot of challenges. I had read a lot about Lauren, but I still wanted to know some beautiful fond memories of her. Sometimes even recalling those memories bring immense pain. But within that pain is a reminder that you're capable and indeed already have turned your grief into a positive force for yourself and the world. Listen to Malcolm reminisce about some fond memories of Lauren. Much of the memories is just uh, uh, sweet gestures and so on. Uh, when I would go in to see her in the morning, uh, almost instantly the little arms would be reaching up and I love that. Um, and uh, her, her reaching out to life. Um, and then there was a, a strong independence to her as well, all the way along. And uh, when I would put her to bed, uh, there'd be this moment where she was sealing off the day and she would turn away. Um, and it was, I think, her way of uh, controlling uh, the night and going to sleep and what was happening to her. And she would go off to be by herself. And I admired that. Um, and and uh, the media, part of this conversation, uh, I knew, and you probably knew, there'll be tears flickering along. There's a lot we treasured together. Another one was the uh, text that I got from her. It, it appeared as they magically do. And it said, I'm here, Dad. I was delighted to get a message of, of affirmation and pride. And where she was, was at a demonstration, the Islamic Center, where she was standing with a group of youth against uh, demonstrators who'd come to demonstrate against the mosque. And uh, her, she was proud to be there and uh, strong and, uh, and wanted to share it. I was glad to get that. Overall, uh, she would share a great deal with me, even hard hard things and lean on me when uh, something hard would happen, but not always. She uh, was very independent to uh, probably a little too confident, uh, probably a little, and that's a hard balance to get right. I remember confiding in my father so much. I find that as we grow and become more mature, we stop confiding in our parents. According to iloverespect.org, only 33% of teens in abusive relationships tell someone. You provide such a clear picture of the strong ongoing connection with your father. I, I think uh, my road with Lauren was a little bumpier than that. But overall, um, I think it was very good and strong and, and positive. Um, I think, I, one, this will be a, a bit of a puzzle to deliver to you and, and the other 
listeners. I don't think I was as alert as uh, I would be now. And uh, partly I want to pass on my alertness to others as Lauren's mother is good at doing that the most uh, dangerous time in relationships is around breakups. Not every breakup is dangerous, but you want to be alert um, and be more alert early on to teach the foundation. You don't see a former partner alone. It's not your job. If you decide you need to leave a partner, it's not your job to look after their needs. But the society and the communities have to have in place resources so everyone can count on the person who was left being looked after. And people need to be sensitive when they're hearing about a breakup and are their needs there and who can best deliver them and to have those teams in place because that's what humans do. They come together and they break apart. And if they don't have the skills and the tools and the backup support, there can be much more damage than there needs to be damage and pain. We need to reframe breaking up, Ashley said at a recent summit. We need to think about it and teach our youth to talk about it differently. Ending a relationship is one of the most painful of human experiences. We have this incredible power to connect and we need, I think, to much more uh, carefully and lovingly teach our uh, young people and ourselves constantly about disconnecting and the skills in, uh, in grieving, uh, the inevitable losses. Uh, a psychiatrist friend said, uh, all our relationships end in uh, breakups, divorce, or death. And that is the hard, hard course of being a human that we don't quite let people in on so that we have the strength to face it together. There's that first stuffed animal that gets lost for a very young child, a first goldfish that dies. And we need to help them right from the start. And it's so important that we have safe places to grieve supportively together, to treasure what still exists, to treasure what we remember. And these are part of the skills that I'm trying to help uh, ensure Uh, partly through our foundation, that we teach our youth much sooner in life. Lauren Dunn Astley Memorial Fund educates teens about many at-risk emotions. Shame is perhaps the most important of them. Often as described by Brené Brown, people think of themselves as mistake, not as having made the mistake. This emotion cuts across all sorts of isms as Malcolm talks about and often shows up in breakups. To do a shame analysis for every person would be a good part of the tasks and and it'll be changed from year to year. I had done numbers of initiatives in that kind of regard uh, against racism, against sexism, against lots of isms. And again, this whole situation has been an opportunity to examine. I think there are many common themes through the isms and and, and it goes back again to shame and to people striving to feel valued. Each of us wants to be seen as effective and lovable. And when we don't feel that way, pain can seep. And uh, someone recently used the term corrosive shame. We need a certain amount of shame to become civilized 
but it's very easy for it to get out of hand. An emotion, I call it one of the at-risk emotions. And uh, there, there may be 12 of them that I think we need to do a much better job of focusing on helping our young people understand them, to name them, and, and to know how to cope with them, both in themselves and in others. Uh, and shame is, is one of the major ones, as I've already touched on in the story of Cain and Abel. And it, and it, it shows up in breakups. I, and I, I believe it was operating in uh, my daughter's death. Do you think along with the kids, the adults should also be given some sort of a training in understanding the signs, finding the resources and how to communicate with a child who is showing signs of distress and dating moves? Um, in terms of my just specific tools and so on, yeah, I, I try to approach both groups. I think approaching young parents uh, early on about these matters is an, a very important road we can go down together of trying to provide opportunities for them to understand these matters and begin working on them very early, as we said, with that first stuffed animal that's lost. And I, uh, we, we want to train young parents to begin talking about these matters uh, as soon as children can talk. <laughs> but it's also about consent or not, which is nonverbal. It's all happens from the beginning and what respect is acted out physically and later on verbally. So it, it's relying on and training very young parents at first and then working with preschools, uh, teachers and parents together and, and gradually moving it along. What I've said is <laughs> with our approach, we're trying to build a skyscraper from the roof on down. That doesn't work very well but it's what we can do for now. So our curriculum is aimed at one high school class period, the love to death curriculum aimed at juniors and escalation developed by the One Love Foundation. They tried to develop it for college and university students who, who affirmed it, but said we needed to hear it before we got here. So that's been largely moved down to seniors in high school, even though it's still used at the college level also. And we have some other tools uh, that can be used at the high school level, but down through middle school, a good little comic book that's free online called Chris and Neela. Videos, stories, comics, love to death workshop. All these methods are wonderful and work efficiently in conveying the message. One thing that has really intrigued me whenever I switch on the TV and watch any sports is the aggressiveness of the sports. I asked Malcolm about what the role of macro factors such as win, lose culture in sports and school and even life in general in our society has on the work of Lorinder Nasley Memorial Fund. Malcolm is quick and on point to recognize the impact of this culture on men and other genders too. He underlines the importance of not winning, but rather being resilient, meaning adjusting, adapting and being productive in new environments. That resilience, perhaps, should be foundational in our education because crisis will always come and go. Back to our search to feel competent and valued. If a loss means a lack of value, then that creature of over shame can appear and lead to a major destabilization, a major weakening of our sense of resilience. 
But if you're defined, if your core is being defined by, by winning and losing, which sports easily can tend to cultivate, then we're in real trouble whenever there's a loss. And the whole concept of being a loser has major impact in our culture at this time. Um, but it underneath it is that lovely striving to be competent and to be seen as valuable. And if we can get those out in the open and identify the many ways that people can be competent and, and be valued and value each other. And, and it leaves, I think, males in many cases vulnerable. And for the many genders that we're now finally becoming aware of, uh, these things get much more complicated, but still the idea that you need to feel competent within yourself, have good resources, know that there will be continuing identity crises, but that you can learn to cope with and face up to. Those are some of the things that uh, uh, I think can, can help boys break out of, uh, as Tony Porter says, break out of the man box, which keeps boys and men tightly isolated and without the ability to reach out, uh, not the skills to talk about their own feelings or help others talk about their feelings and have a much more connected culture, which I, I think we can do. Every year, Lauren Dunn Astley Memorial Fund offers mini grant program during the holidays to fund small projects in three areas, effective teen relationships and violence prevention, the arts and community service. Emotions can be consuming. One of the things that I really wanted to ask Malcolm was, how did he cope up with the grief and decide that he wanted to do something in Lawrence's memory? My grief was a terror at uh, at first, and uh, and it can still rise up that way, uh, a, a reaching out for something so dear that's gone, which we all again gradually get to experience. The, the pain was almost physical for the first number of weeks, uh, as, as if my limbs had been ripped from my body. Um, but there was not one point. I, I was talking with the, one of the prosecutors, the state prosecutors, within days of Lauren's murder, and a, a state senator was kind enough to come and say, what do you think needs to be done, Malcolm, to help prevent this kind of event? So the wheels were already turning that way. And partly, again, it, it rested on my education and my efforts to educate from decades. So that structure was already in place. And it, it's, it was sort of an automatic response. We have a, a problem here and what caused it, what led to it, and how can we work on prevention? That was Dr. Malcolm Ashley, co-founder of the Lauren Dunn Ashley Memorial Fund. Lauren was Dr. Astley's daughter, who was killed by her ex-boyfriend. Dr. Astley's been a lifelong educator, served as the principal of Bowman Elementary School in Lexington, Massachusetts, and he's turned his personal tragedy into his life's mission to educate about and prevent teen violence. In recent years, Dr. Astley has worked tirelessly to increase state funding in Massachusetts for youth training and healthy relationships and violence prevention, from 150000 to now a $1 million in the recent fiscal year of 2020.
You can find links to Dr. Astley's work with the Lauren Dunn Astley Memorial Fund at peacetalksradio.com. Look for our July 2022 episode. That's also where you can hear Yamini Ranjan's full extended interview with Dr. Astley, peacetalksradio.com. In a moment, how media plays a critical role in often giving us the wrong notion about ideal relationships and defining abuse after this short break. Listening to Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls today with Yamini Ranjan. You can find all of our episodes dating back to 2002 at peacetalksradio.com. Peacetalksradio.com. Today we're exploring teen domestic violence and solutions to reducing it being tried out in the Boston, Massachusetts area. Our notion of ideal relationships and abuse often gets shaped by the media, not always in a healthy way, as we'll hear more about when Yamini talks with Jessica Tepero, the Director of Prevention Programs at Reach Beyond Domestic Violence. She's worked to help survivors and engage communities in the greater Boston area for over 20 years. But why do you think teens generally don't have a good idea what healthy relationship look like? I think a lot of adults don't know what healthy relationships look like. I think, well, I think for young people, they don't have the benefit of lived experience yet. And so they tend to look to different sources to give them information. So one big source of information for all of us, but really shapes, I think, a lot of young people's understanding of relationships and expectations has to do with the media, you know, both social media, but also looking at television shows and movies, even books. And by and large, if you look at popular media and the way that relationships are portrayed, the images that we're given of what love looks like is not the way that I would define or describe a healthy relationship, but they are, you know, celebrated. I mean, I think even about In Massachusetts, I believe most schools still require uh, freshmen to read Romeo and Juliet. And Romeo and Juliet is often described as the most romantic story of all time. But if you break that story down, we're talking about two teenagers who didn't really know each other, but within moments decided that they loved this person and they couldn't live without them. Their friends and family forbid them from seeing each other. So we get this message of star-crossed lovers. And within a very short period of time, they both die. And yet that's the story that we use. And it's replicated in all of these television and movie shows as well of what love looks like. So if I'm a young person and I'm starting to explore romantic relationships and I have someone 
who wants to get very intense with me very quickly, who's very jealous if I, you know, talk to other people, if I have friends and family express concern and my partner tells me they don't understand it's us against the world, I may feel like, oh, this is what romance is because this is how I see romance portrayed. And so the media does a great job of teaching a lot of really unhealthy behaviors and calling them love. You know, jealousy is a great one that we see as a warning sign because jealousy can often be connected to controlling behavior. But a lot of people feel like jealousy is a way of expressing how much I care about this person. And then the other source that young people look to is their peers. And it's part of why educating young people early and also helping them have these conversations with each other is so important. Because while it's important that all the adults in their lives are giving really consistent and healthy messages about relationships, we also know that they are very influenced by what their peers are saying and doing as well. So wanted to know about how, as a victim, sometimes people just don't realize they're being abused. How would they tell people when they themselves don't know that they are in an abusive relationship? How do we help victim in, in such a situation? So I think what you just described is really common. Um, that definition I gave before about, you know, abuse is a pattern of behavior that one person uses to gain and maintain power and control over another person is not a definition that I think most people know. If I've never had a formal class or workshop on domestic violence, then my understanding might come from the way I've seen it depicted in the news, the way I've seen it on shows like Law and Order, or the way I hear my friends and family talk about it. And a lot of the ways that it's portrayed in the news is these two kind of predominant narratives. The first being stories we hear, tragic stories of domestic violence homicide, where people say, never saw this coming. They were the perfect couple. Um, you know, the abuser was well, not just liked, but beloved by the community. And the storyline often becomes a great relationship, a great person who one day just snapped. And that's often how the abuser will describe why they did what they did. You know, I lost my mind. You know, I, I was so jealous. I flew into this, you know, whatever it may be. And so what that storyline gives us is a very counter narrative to the definition I shared. It's a story of losing control, not of having control. And those stories are very upsetting to hear, but it also gives a message that nothing could have been done to prevent this, that it was just this random act. The other narrative that we see a lot in fictionalized media that I think is really powerful in shaping people's understanding of domestic violence is what I would call the monster myth, where the people who perpetrate harm are depicted in these very overt, obvious ways. You know, we've got ominous music every time they come into a room or they smile too long the first time you see them in this creepy way. And the people who create these kinds of shows and movies send a lot of really subtle messages to the audience that gives them that signal of like, oh, that's the bad guy. But the main characters of the show don't discover that for some time, which leaves a lot of us feeling like I'm really good at spotting abusers. <laughs> like I always know who it is well before the detectives figure it out 25 minutes later. 
And so that allows us to believe that abusers are easy to spot, that they are unlikable, that they are people who are very overtly causing harm in lots of places and spaces. And so it allows us to feel like I would know right away and I would avoid that person. They would not be a friend of mine or family member. I would not get into a relationship with someone like that. And so how that then affects victims' perceptions or survivors' perceptions of their own relationships is very often there's this feeling of like, yeah, I know this isn't okay, but they're not an abuser because they're not a bad person. You know, abusers are bad people. Abuse often follows a pattern like a wave. There's really, really good times. And then there's really bad and scary times. And survivors often look at the good times as the real relationship and the bad times as these exceptions that they just, they feel responsible for because an abuser is really adept at blaming everyone but themselves. So if you had just returned my phone call when I first called, I wouldn't have had to call 10 more times. You know, if you had just had dinner ready, I wouldn't have gotten so upset. And so a survivor is working overtime during those periods of calm to try to prevent the next period of intensity. I think there's also a misconception that abuse is only physical. So if I'm experiencing something, but it's not leaving bruises or physical signs of, of harm, then maybe it's not really abuse. And again, abusers will use that to their advantage by saying, I never laid a hand on you or no one will believe you. And so I think it's important to understand that, you know, many people don't understand this, but that also includes people who are experiencing it. So I think it's really hard to to label our own experience with a term like abuse because it carries so much weight. And many survivors stay for a lot of different reasons, including they may really love this person. And because there are periods where things get better, they may really believe that this can, that the relationship can get better, that these bad times will dissipate or even go away altogether. And so, you know, it can be hard to identify for ourselves if we don't have a deeper understanding of, you know, abuse really being about power and control that it's intentional. That's really hard to think about, that someone would intentionally make me feel like I'm crazy, that that person doing that is someone I love and someone who says they love me. There can be you know, shame of how did I let this happen to me? And so I think there can be a lot of barriers to someone in a relationship being abused to identifying it as abuse. How stories of healthy serial dating can be normalized. You know, the idea that before you are 30, one will likely have or probably should have multiple partners to learn how to be in a relationship. Like I was born and raised in India, Jessica, and it's a big shame. It's a taboo to talk about dating. I think not just India, dating is a very uncomfortable topic for parents. And I think absolutely, I think that's part of why it's so important that we provide safe spaces for parents to talk about their discomfort and to actually build skills rather than just assume you should talk to your kids and that's enough, right? We have to really think about, well, how do I do that? And I think the reality is that many of us might worry about, oh gosh, what will happen when my child starts dating? But if we create a dynamic of shame around dating, doesn't mean they're not going to date. It means they're going to date and not tell us about it. It actually increases their the risk for them because they're going to be hiding it. 
And so, you know, I always hope that my child feels like they can talk to me about anything, but I'm also aware of the fact that there will come a time when I won't be the person they'll want to talk to. My job is to make sure they know they always can and that they also know who else is a good person to talk to. That's That for me is what's most important. So I think in terms of dating norms, I think what's hard is that there can be so much pressure on young people. And I think especially with the pandemic, there's there's always been a need to feel a sense of belonging for all of us. That's that's crucial to our mental health. Social connectedness is crucial to our well-being. And the pandemic really impacted that for so many of us. You know, you know, when you think about the developmental milestones that many children hit during this time, there's going to be an impact of that um, in, in ways that we will continue to learn. And so, you know, what, what does it mean to develop a friendship in person again, let alone on Zoom, if that's how you're interacting with your classmates? What does it mean just to be around each other again? What does it mean to be, and all the pressures that young people can feel because of how they're sort of viewing the world externally. So they may feel like everyone's in a relationship or everyone is trying to be in a relationship. Maybe I'm not ready, but maybe I should pretend that I am because that's what's expected. I do think getting to experience different kinds of people, different kinds of relationships can be a way of really learning yourself. Um, I think, again, what's really hard is when it feels like you're doing it because it's what's expected of you. Um, and it's harder, I think, sometimes to listen to that internal voice and learn about yourself when it's really more in service of others. And so, again, I think it's just being able to provide opportunities for young people to feel supported as they navigate all those really tough dynamics. So we touched upon victim, we touched upon the aggressor. Third and Finally, I think there are close people, friends and family. Uh, it must be really traumatizing for them as well. Yes. Yeah. What has been your experience working with this third group? I love working with friends and family. I think it is integral work. For friends and family, I think I always start off when someone reaches out to me, first just providing them with a space to process the impact on them. To your point of it being traumatizing, you know, we talk about abusers taking control away from their victims or the survivor, but they also effectively are taking away the control of the people who care about that person. You know, a lot of us, when we care about someone who's in an abusive relationship, we also feel powerless. We want to be able to protect them. We want to be able to pull them out of, of harm's way and seeing someone we care about being harmed in any way, emotionally, mentally, physically, by someone they're in a relationship with is a deeply impactful experience. If we can have a space to process the impact on us, we're better able to show up for our loved ones. The second thing I'll say is that when we feel powerless, we feel more inclined to moving into action. We want to do something. We want to have the right thing to say, the right thing to do. I've had people say, I'm going to throw them in my car and just drive away. And so what I like to remind people of is if we're grounded in this understanding that the abuser has been systematically taking control away from the survivor, then the way that we support that survivor 
cannot be something that would further take control away from them. Even though it's with the best of intention, we don't want to mimic that experience of someone in their life taking control away. So one very simple strategy is shifting away from advice-giving language, which usually includes the word should, you should leave, to thinking about how we can provide options. So shifting from advice to options, from shoulds to coulds. So rather than say, you should leave, you should call this hotline, you should get a restraining order, being able to talk with a survivor in a way that really models to someone, it's your choice. Not hiding the fact that we're concerned for them, right? I'm really concerned about what you've shared with me, or I've noticed that you've seemed really stressed lately. You know, would it be okay if we talked about it or if you ever want to talk? You get to decide if you want to talk to me. You get to decide how much you want to share. And then if there are things like a hotline that you think someone should call, rather than say to someone, you should call them, just being able to offer it to them as an option. Did you know that there are organizations like Reach that have confidential hotlines? If you ever wanted to talk to someone, it's available 24-7. I would be happy to be with you while we called, or I could call and ask some questions. Or I can just give you the number and you can decide if you ever want to call them or not. I just want you to know that it's there. And, you know, I think being able to provide a space where someone feels first and foremost heard and believed because abusers are so adept at making someone feel silenced and not only like the abuser doesn't believe their experience, but that they convince survivors that no one else will believe them either. So really in our actions, counteracting those experiences by providing a space to listen, to, to really demonstrate I hear you and I believe you, to provide options that really demonstrate it is your choice, and to be able to really demonstrate that you care for them, but also I think for friends and family to remember that being able to demonstrate that in a way that's sustainable. So I think what's hard is that sometimes we feel like I got to save this person. So I'm going to tell them they can call me anytime, day or night. Um, I'm going to do this or that. And then if that starts to happen, our ability to sustain that level of support can be impacted. So I encourage people to offer the kinds of support that they feel like they could sustain. So, And so, you know, really being able to honor all the things you have going on in your life while also really communicating to someone, I really care about you and I want to make sure you have other people you can talk to as well. And I'm going to follow up with you and let's make a plan for that. So the name of the program is REACH. How does it really help reach young people? So the full title of our organization is REACH Beyond Domestic Violence. We were founded in 1981 under a different name, uh, the Waltham Support Committee for Battered Women. Wow. And uh, a lot of organizations use the term battering and the title of their organization, and they also specified women. And over the years, REACH and other organizations realized that the title of the organization was actually leaving people out. Domestic violence is broader and deeper than just battering and physical violence. Absolutely. And that people of all genders can experience domestic violence. And so in the early 2000s, the organization made the decision to change the name 
REACH is an acronym. It stands for Refuge, Education, Advocacy, and Change. Prevention isn't just what do we want to stop happening, but what are we working towards? What do we hope to create or foster? And in terms of young people, I think that we got to give young people a lot of credit. They are incredibly wise. They know a lot about their own lives. They also know a lot about their peers. And I think a lot of young people are really looking to have conversations about relationships to help them build skills to navigate and to be able to have healthy relationships, whether that's friendships in elementary school um, and middle school or dating relationships as they get older, being able to really feel like, and again, I think it speaks to the experience I had as a high school student, being in a community that focused so much on academic achievement, when in reality, if you have healthy relationships and feel supported by those around you, your ability to achieve in all areas is enhanced. That's Jessica Tepero, Director of Prevention Programs at Reach Beyond Domestic Violence. You can find links to Jessica's bio and work at peacetalksradio.com. Look for the July 2022 episode. That's where you can also hear Yamini Ranjan's full extended interview with Jessica, peacetalksradio.com. In a moment, we delve deeper into how we can better prepare teens for dating's emotional swings and setbacks and avoid the violence that sometimes erupts after this short break. It's Peace Talks Radio, the radio show and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with correspondent Yamini Ranjan. And today we're exploring teen domestic violence and how folks in the Boston, Massachusetts area are taking steps to reduce it. Many working on this issue say that teens are vulnerable and unprepared to deal with domestic and breakup violence, and that early education on the threat is an important step to reduce the trouble. This is where our next guest, Nicole Daly, comes in. Nicole is the director of the Division of Violence and Injury Prevention at the Massachusetts Department of Public Health. She served as program director of the Start Strong program at the Boston Public Health Commission and as the director of evaluation and engagement at the One Love Foundation. As an expert in the field of teen dating violence, Nicole has led teams to develop innovative curriculum for teens and adults on healthy relationships, teen dating violence, media literacy, and healthy breakups. Again, our correspondent is Yamini Ranjan. I want to get into the details of how these in-school programs are able to make a difference. Like, how do they sound? What are they really like? 
Yeah, I think in-school programs are so important because young people are spending a large percent of their time um, there and their friendships that are happening at school are such a critical piece of their development. So I think in-school programs are really instrumental in like how we address dating violence. When you have a really good program, I think having really good materials, um, movies, um, things that young people can talk about, right? Because it's really hard in a school setting for you to, you know, to open up personally about what might be going on in your relationship. But it is really easy for you to talk about, um, you know, that relationship you see on the screen, you know, or, you know, in the case of Malcolm Astley's program, like what happened to his daughter. And so I think it's really important for um, in-school programs to be relevant. And the ones that are done really well, like the One Love Foundation, you know, the Laura Dunn Astley Foundation's programs, I think those make the issues seem realistic, but they also don't um, make them sensational. And I think mm. um, that's what's really important because a young person has to be able to see themselves in that relationship. They have to see mm. their world, you know, and where they come from and how that couple is kind of working through their issues as being part of who they are. And then that gives them a sense of like, oh, okay, this is what a healthy relationship looks like. This is what an unhealthy relationship looks like. And I think programs that allow young people to explore and ask questions, you know, Start Strong program at the Boston Public Health Commission, where they're so based on asking and allowing the youth to say, like, why do you think that, right? Where did that concept of, like, you know, going through someone's phone as a, is a sign of, you know, a healthy relationship? Where did that, that myth come from? Like, starting to, like, unpack that for them. And I think young people really gravitate towards that. They don't gravitate towards programs that tell them what to do and how to do it, but they gravitate towards the exploration. Like we're on this journey together to understand what a healthy relationship is. You spoke about Start Strong program that you helped oversee when you were at Boston Public Health Commission. What makes this program impactful? I think what makes the Start Strong program really impactful is um, their youth-centered approach. And so really as they... um, design all the next iterations of their programs is really coming from talking with the peer leaders in the program about what's going on in the lives of young people. You know, what are you seeing? What are the trends um, amongst your peers? And I think those, um, those conversations, I think, really help Start Strong to be on the cutting edge of, you know, having those types of conversations that could help move the needle for young people. And also I'm thinking about the promotions that they do too, um, to get the word out about teen dating violence. It's a peer-led model. So peer leaders are also leading the conversations. It's not just the adult facilitators going out, but it's really the high school age peer leaders who are going to talk to their peers about the topic. Are there programs for adults, parents? I think there's like offshoots of them, but I haven't heard of one that's uniquely designed for parents. There's a lot of the reproductive health programs that are targeting parents will have, uh, sorry, that are targeting parents will have a dating violence um, component to them or talking about healthy relationships. Because one of the things that I really appreciated that happened over my career too, is that when we first started the work, like reproductive health was over here teen dating violence was over there. But then there was that realization that like part of a healthy sexual relationship was being in a healthy relationship. So you could communicate with your partner 
and negotiate condom usage and some of those other and birth control and those other conversations. So you do see there's more synergy between them. So you might be able to find some pieces of healthy relationships woven into parent focused sex ed program. Are the parents supportive, Nicole? of these programs? Generally speaking, they have been. Generally speaking, most of the parents have recognized that this was a really important topic. And so having this talked about within schools, especially because schools are seen as, you know, um, not always, but many times like a safe place, they, they're familiar with it. And so knowing we were brought into the school helps pe- um, parents to understand. And, and oftentimes when we communicate about what's being covered in the program, um, that's always been really helpful for parents to to get on board. I wanted to ask if there are some who say, you know, I'll tell my kids about it myself. You know, I don't need this program. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a small yeah. subset, but it's actually smaller than you would think. That's that's a good news then. And that brings me to the point that how frequent are these programs in a school? Like how frequently are they taught? Not frequently enough. <laughs> I I think one of the issues with teen dating violence that makes it really tough is that it's usually school by school, right? Um, Community center by community center, figuring out a way for all young people to get um, this really important information and have these important conversations. And it's not for people not caring about the issue, right? I mean, I think when I started my career over 10 years ago, right? It was like just being talked about openly, right? People knew that young people could experience teen dating violence, but it wasn't so readily accepted in the schools. Now I think a lot of people care and recognize that, but then you have substance use um, that has to happen in health class. You have, you know, talking about alcohol and drinking and all these other topic areas that are also important. And so now you've come up with the situation of like, how do we etch out enough time for this topic um, as well amongst all the other health topics that we're trying to um, to have happen within a school community. In an ideal world, it would be, you know, kids are getting it in after school programs, they're getting it in school, like parents have the language to talk to their young people about, right? You get a, a discussion guide with every movie. Like, I just think it would be something that you just kind of, it's almost the ear you breathe, like talking about relationships. Tell us about how inclusive these programs are? Are your prevention strategies directed uh, or targeted towards mostly men, heterosexual relationships or otherwise? I would say the field has come a long way when I started. Um, we've always recognized that teen dating violence could happen in any relationship, you know, LGBTQIA couples, um, straight couples, um, but I don't think there was as much content for LGBTQIA young people. Um, but I know that the field has moved further in that direction. So a lot of times when we're talking about um, couples, we'll use the word partner. You know, we've been creating more, you know, visual media that's reflective of LGBTQIA couples and what might feel like, you know, uniquely different for them. Um, so I think as we've moved forward, we've come leaps and bounds in in talking with young people, you know, who might identify as queer to say, hey, we recognize this because there's also a bigger barrier for them, right? If you're 14 years old, this is your first relationship and it's unhealthy, you might not have been fully out to your parents, right? You might, and then now you're stuck in this relationship because you're scared to come out to them. Or you might be in a small community where you're like, well, there are not as many friends who identify as LGBTQIA. Like, well, I lose all my friends if I break up with this person. So there's some things that could be really unique. 
um, to young people who are LGBTQIA. But at the same time, and so we're we're doing a better job of like having those conversations. I want to know about the cultural inclusivity in these conversations that are being laid out. The world is a global village and uh, kids are from different culture. You know, do you try to understand different cultural ethnic groups um, to make these program even more efficient on, in those circles? Uh, there are different components here. So I want to understand that part. Yeah, culture is a big piece. I think that's why there's so much of the content that has to keep evolving to meet the needs of the global village. So I think of One Love, for example, and you know how much they've diversified their content since their inception to meet the needs of you know, different ethnic groups, different cultures. I think it's important when we first started the work, you know, there's many cultures where dating as a teenager is not a thing, right? Like just the way the program is, is set up. So we had to be really careful and like thinking about like, how do we even frame this as something that's like could be useful later in life? Because if you're not dating right now as a young person, right? Like how are these, um, these, you know, important healthy relationship characteristics going to be useful later? How do you still think about discernment um, in that environment? Um, so yeah, so we've had to definitely modify um, our thinking, especially even talking to parents, because like when we would go in and do the parent workshops, you know, there'd be parents who are like, my child doesn't date, my child's not supposed to date, they know better. But there was two things that are really important. One is I'm like, but when they do get into a healthy relationship, or they do get into a relationship later in life as um, an adult, you do want these healthy characteristics for them. And oftentimes the parents would acknowledge that and say yes. Or the other piece is I grew up as a, you know, you know, first generation immigrant kid. My parents immigrated to the United States in the seventies. I wasn't supposed to date, but I also had ways to get it. So it's like, Still coaching parents that like, you can still instill all these conversations now, even if you don't want your child to date. It's okay to say like, that's off the table, but you can still talk to them about what it means to be in a healthy relationship, what you would hope for them in the future. And if they happen to be the type of kid who's dating now, hopefully they'll still apply it. If they're the type of kid who's going to wait and abide for it, you know, still preparing them for what's such an important relationship later on in life. Absolutely. What are some of the challenges or problems you face in adoption and execution of these programs in school? I think some of the biggest issues we face with schools is the bandwidth because teachers are carrying so much. And so trying to understand where in the school year these programs can be um, conducted, which teachers have the bandwidth. Because like one year you might have a champion teacher who's like, yes, we can roll this out across the seventh grade. And then the next year there might be competing interests or that teacher might have left the school. So there can be a lot of challenges with working with the school community year after year to make sure that the program is codified. I also think, you know, when we think about young people and where they are, it's like getting to enough young people in a sense, to like make sure that the messaging resonates, right? Because if you have just a few students like who hear the message, but there's so much other like noise, like I said, reality TV shows, things that are have glorified unhealthy relationships that they're constantly being exposed to, it's really it's really hard to get to that saturation point to make them say, oh, here's this alternative healthy relationship uh, model that I can you know right. build my life around. Are you still adding uh, new things into the programs? Yes, um, it's always constantly evolving. So when we first started the work, um, 
we had a heavy focus on music, like the nutrition label, because we were thinking about the messaging and music. Um, yeah, and- I, I want to know about that. That was very intriguing for me. What is a nutrition label? It was designed with our first director, Casey Corcoran. And so the idea was that, you know, we know the content in our food and not all food is bad, right? Um, But how we know that and make those decisions for ourselves is by looking at a nutrition label. And so, you know, he had the idea and we worked together to think about like, how do we know about the content in music? Because like, for example, there's so many songs where it seems like the most amazing love song and then you like actually listen to the lyrics and you're like, wait, 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 <laughs> this, this person's a little obsessive. So like the first, um, but like the first time we did the nutrition label, Bruno Mars was really popular. And that's when he first came out. And you know, Bruno Mars has amazing love songs, right? Like they're all really great. When we first did the nutrition label and the way it's broken up is like you have five healthy relationship ingredients and five unhealthy relationship ingredients and so like one of the unhealthy relationship ingredients is obsession right and another one is like the relationship only equals sex you know another piece was jealousy and so we had these pieces and like Bruno Mars is super popular so and he had all these amazing love songs but when we actually applied the nutrition label and talked about the lyrics themselves we're like he's a little obsessive. Like, I'll catch a grenade for you, right? Uh, <laughs> you know? like <laughs> So, and those are the things that, again, we get fed these, like, myths in media, like, if the person's obsessed with you, if they're showing up at your doorstep, if they're professing to sacrifice themselves, that's love. And that's great in media, but in real life, you know, if that person's not letting you walk out the door to have another relationship, that's when it's unhealthy. Um, you know, and so unpacking what's love or what's put across as love is really important. So sorry, Bruno. I love you in other ways. <laughs> Me too. I mean, I, I do love his songs, but this is an amazing idea. Incredible. I mean, it's used in lots of different ways, depending on the school. So we've had people give, you know, it out as like homework assignment and say, find your favorite song and analyze it. We oftentimes within Start Strong would use it um, within the group setting. So like at the after school program, we'd like allow the kids to select the song because that's the other thing makes it more relevant. Choose whichever songs you want to hear. What's your favorite song right now? now and then we kind of go through the conversation about the lyrics and you know what they represented but Cardi B songs are my favorite and I can't play it I just can't play it in the car or otherwise in the house no 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 there's no shame in that I mean the biggest message is to know what's in the music it's not to say don't listen to it or listen to it but just know what's in the music so you can say like okay that's a great song but it's not how relationships should be That's Nicole Daly, Director of the Division of Violence and Injury Prevention at the Massachusetts Department of Public Health. You can find out more information about her and all of our guests at peacetalksradio.com. That's also where you can hear Yamini's complete interviews with each of them. That's where you can go to hear all the programs in our series dating back to 2002, see photos of our guests, read and share transcripts, sign up for our podcast, order CDs, and make a donation to keep this program going into the future, all at peacetalksradio.com. Support does come from listeners like you, but also from the Albuquerque Community Foundation Ties Fund. For Yamini Ranjan, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks so much for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Mm-hmm.